trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. Oh, I do have some good news to talk about today, but we're also going to uh, get a good solid lay of the land. And yeah, there's some pretty interesting stuff taking place. Among the things we'll be covering today, got a great article on how the coming global reset will be fast and there will be no warning. Now, why is that a big deal to you? Because it's going to involve your money. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we love money, at least when we have it, right? It's, it's, always, it's always a treat, you know, finding a $20 bill stuffed down in a pocket of a jacket or something that you'd forgotten about. Hey, look at that. Got a little bonus. Changes are coming. And I don't say that to be scary, and I'm not telling you, boy, the time to panic is now. Put your arms in the air and run around screaming. Nope. Just understand that uh, what is coming as part of the global reset is going to be primarily financially. And we're seeing this play out in some ways. I know it's, it's a big world. There's a lot going on. But if you don't have some kind of plans as to, okay, but what can I do to preserve my wealth or to preserve, you know, what I've got saved up, you're going to be reaching a very interesting decision point in that uh, you're going to be told, well, you have to take this kind of money. The kind that can be taken or given with just the click of a mouse. That's uh, that's going to be interesting. We'll get to that in a few moments. Also, we'll talk about the polarization beast, what we do to feed that. Talk about the shredded social contract. We've got a great article of the day today. I know you're hearing talk about all these book burners out there. They're trying to get the nasty books out of their school libraries and so forth. Here's the thing, though. As uh, Neil McCluskey explains... The problem isn't the book banners. In fact, it's not book banners at all. It's it's public schools. This is what happens when you force people to pay for things that they clearly don't agree with, like the woke agenda. I'm going to start on something a little more positive, though, today. And I want to talk about uh, how if you're, if you're someone who loves freedom, you have to be willing to stand up to illicit authority. Now, I know some people hear that and they think, well, that sounds like a call to to lawlessness. But what I'm talking about is sowing the seeds of rebellion by becoming self-sufficient. So I want to mention just a couple of things here and ask you, what do these have in common? Providing someone with raw milk, collecting rainwater to water your garden, saving seeds from your garden to grow next year's crop. Now, the thing that all of these have in common is all of them might be illegal depending upon where you live. Now, look, it's the nature of government to gradually seek to expand its control over our lives. Seatbelt laws, legal tender laws, there's a host of other natty state nonsense regulations that use government force to limit our choices. And we might grumble at the intrusiveness, but for the most part, we tend to go along with them. But when that force starts to interfere with what we eat and drink for sustenance, well, it's time to take notice. In fact, it's time to take action. Now, to underline this story, in Wisconsin, a farmer faced more than two years in prison and $10,000 in fines for, for providing a private buying club with raw milk 
and other farm products. Now, the state says, well, he's operating a retail food business without a license. But a private buying club is not subject to state food regulations. The farmer named Vernon Hirschberger said, there's more at stake here than just a farmer and his few customers. This is about the fundamental right of farmers and consumers to engage in peaceful, private, mutually consenting agreements for food without additional oversight. Now, those who seek to justify the state's unnecessary actions by invoking the need for food safety, you know, are ignoring a couple of essential factors. First, the Food Buyers Club is a voluntary arrangement between peaceful, consenting individuals. Second, more importantly, no one has actually been sickened or harmed as a result of their agreement. In other words, there's no reason for the state to be involved in the first place. Now, the practice of collecting rainwater that falls on one's property, does that surprise you to learn how many states have outlawed that? Bureaucrats have imposed controls based on the notion that, well, using the water prevents it from getting where it was intended to go. But a study carried out in Colorado shows actually about uh, roughly 90% of rainfall either evaporates or seeps into the ground before the water reaches its final destination. Now, some states under pressure from outspoken citizens are starting to loosen their restrictions and grudgingly allow property owners to use this rainwater. But it still boils down to a matter of control. So if we're not free to collect rain that falls all around us, then what exactly are we free to do? This outlawing of rainwater collection is actually a pretty good illustration of that accelerating trend toward diminishing freedom and increased government control. Do you know even planting your own garden is coming under scrutiny? Apparently the European Union considers criminalizing the, the use of seeds not tested, approved, and accepted by the government. You understand that? That means heirloom seeds, the ones that are saved from one crop to the next, could effectively be outlawed, which could drastically impact the ability of people to grow their own food without first submitting to government control. So the question is, could it happen here? Well, Americans only need to consider the cozy relationship that uh, Monsanto and other large seed companies enjoy with the U.S. government. Any government that's allowed to dominate the food supply, that's entirely unacceptable. So what can we do to fight back? All right, well, this is where Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper, has the right idea. She says, we sow seeds of rebellion right in our own yards. Now, here's what she's talking about. She says, no matter where you live, plant every square inch of space possible. Apartment dwellers can utilize window boxes and container gardens, as well as hydroponics and sprouting. Suburban families can fill their yards with square foot gardens, front yard vegetable beds, and greenhouses or grow boxes. They can also keep chickens, rabbits, or small goats on their property. Rural dwellers can plant entire fields and incorporate livestock into their food production plants. Now, Daisy recommends saving seeds from one harvest to the next. She encourages going organic and using natural methods of pest control. And... She advocates learning to can and preserve the food you grow and to purchase locally what you cannot grow for yourself. By the way, there is a peace of mind that comes from that that uh, you all you you have to experience it in order to really fully appreciate it. Something about making a dish with these are tomatoes we grew in our garden, you know, these are eggs from our chickens and so forth. There's there's just a there's a really neat feeling of satisfaction that comes when you're able to do this, but Daisy Luther also warned you can expect backlash. 
there are municipal governments, for instance, that can be very hostile to people trying to feed themselves. People who've planted, you know, square foot gardens or vegetable boxes, you know, in their front yards have had the city come by and tell them, well, we've got to have you rip that out because that's against code. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just it's, it's error in the rules. The rules here on this clipboard say this is what has to happen. But I think her point is well taken. If you're going to rebel, if you're going to be a rebel for the right reasons, this is a good one to do it. And allowing government to interfere with our ability to feed ourselves, that's a very dangerous thing. It calls for acts of peaceful disobedience, like planting what you can where you can. As Daisy says, the single most meaningful act of resistance that any individual can perform is to use the old methods and to grow his or her own food. I don't know why, but that just strikes me as especially inspirational. That's, that's inspiring to me uh, because I, I think there's, there's just wisdom in it. Now, I know we're on the end of the growing season, right? The harvest is over. Fields are getting plowed up now. The, the corn is coming down. It's, you know, the, the seasons have run their course. But I got to tell you, the last couple of years, we have, uh, we have done a vegetable garden. We actually grow it at my in-laws because they have a very dedicated space. And it's, it's big. It's, you know, it's probably 20 by 50 garden space. It's, it's good sized. And we grow more food than we can possibly eat. I mean, we're talking with several families. The, the amount of squash, the amount of beans and, and tomatoes and, and peppers. Holy cow, the peppers. My son really got into planting those this year. It's an amazing thing. And it's, it's just one of those cooperative arts where you get your hands dirty and you have to suffer the bugs and you have to suffer the weather and hope that, you know, the freeze doesn't come too late and kill your new plants or that it doesn't come too early and, you know, damage the, the plants that are still producing. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm waxing a little bit giddy over this, but it's really satisfying to see how much of your own food you can produce. Now, of course, still, yes, we go to the grocery store and we get things that are, are simpler to, to pick up there. But in a pinch, if all we had to eat was what we were providing from our garden and canning from our garden, I can tell you I've got some peace of mind right there thinking... We've got uh, enough, and we could spare some, too. By the way, you want some zucchini? Okay, just asking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And my sincere thanks to each and every one of you who subscribe to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. My sincere thanks to those of you who support this show. And it's just, it, it means a lot. Thank you. So the growing polarization of American society does not appear to be getting better. That probably has a lot to do with the, the election coming up next month. But there is something that you and I can do to kind of ease the, the growing tension. Yes, it's one small act, but we can stop feeding the polarization beast. This is an article from Allison Dagnus. Found this on intellectualtakeout.org. 
Allison says, the new academic year has begun, as is evidence from the smell of Xeroxed paper in our hallways and the excitement of college freshmen who are new to our classrooms. These first weeks are glorious. The students are cheerful and optimistic, believing that this will be the year of straight A's and good times. Now, the professors are generally happy, too, having spent at least part of the summer away from campus, believing that this is the year where there will be no plagiarism, only enthusiastic class participation, and completed reading assignments. Now, she says, these first few weeks are always so helpful and expectant. Then the first exams hit, and spirits are murdered en masse, like a law and order marathon, but with fewer attorneys. She says, that's the way it is normally, anyway. But as we're often told, these are unprecedented times. This fall of 2023, the spirit killing happened way too quickly in my American politics classrooms. Something I noted when a first-year student took my proffered syllabus, met my smile with a grimace, and asked, do we, like, have to talk about politics in this class? Now, Allison says my student's not alone in her political distaste, as evidenced by recent polling data from Pew that reports a majority of Americans are, quote, exhausted when thinking about politics. Sounds about right. Even worse, the Pew data showed that the percentage of Americans who are excited by politics is a microscopic 4%. That's lower than the percentage of Americans who hate ice cream, which is only 7%. On the plus side, it's higher than the percentage of people who don't like dogs. That's 2%. In any case, the number is depressing to consider for those of us who are unrelenting cheerleaders for democracy. Now, she says the bottom lines are these. Elections are important. Elections have consequences. The American experiment of a democratic republic is teetering now. It's an all decks on hand, all hands on deck, rather. There we go. Situation where everyone needs to chip in or the whole thing's going to fall apart. But unfortunately, these bottom lines are increasingly difficult to sell to the general public, which can avoid bad information with a thumb swipe. So the theory known as news avoidance describes a segment of the public who, after being deluged with so much content and information, unplugs from the news. Well, that would be me. That's exactly what I do. Reuters conducts an annual survey of global news trends and has found that the percentage of American news avoiders is growing. Its 2023 report stated the percentage of Americans who are passive consumers or avoiders of the news has grown to 51%. Now, Allison Dagnus says, let's unpack that number because being a passive consumer is about the same as total abstention. Thanks to technology, those who want to, even those who want to dodge the news will still get bits of information from story fragments that seep into their feeds. Now, these servings can come from reliably sourced journalism or spicy stories that may or may not be true or scary misinformation from well-meaning friends or shady disinformation that originates from truly bad-intentioned actors. But regardless of the information quality, everyone who receives these news bits is getting them without context or perspective. And this is where our hyper-polarized, deeply personal, and furious political system becomes repugnant for her students and apparently for the majority of Americans who use the words divisive and corrupt to describe U.S. politics. The political stories most people hear are actually slivers of information that pierce their news avoidance because they're the loudest, most sensational bits. And our current political media system feeds this beast. When politics moves from policy debates to a fight about individuals, the discourse has become a cheapened binary. Nuance takes time, but sledgehammer invectives are much easier and a lot more effective as clickbait. She says this is not about Biden 
are just about Biden and Trump. Seemingly every election in 24 will be a negative referendum on a single person. Will you vote against Doug Mastriano if he runs? Will you vote George Santos out of office? Will you send Joe Biden and his crime family packing? No wonder our elections have become one-dimensional unpopularity contests. And no wonder only about 4% of those polled are excited about the elections. She says only the most engrossed and outraged citizens dig into these fights and politicians cater to this subset of seething voters instead of the broader public. This is where, as the bulwarks Tim Miller writes, politics becomes fan service, where politicians just play the hits. Our political climate right now is toxic, so the greatest hits are chock full of emotion. In an effort to break through the noise, these politicians continue to amplify their well-worn messages of negative partisanship, panic, and ire. That's what's seen and heard by all those Americans who are already trying to avoid the news because it's so angry and contentious, so that's not good. But she says the answer, however, is straightly forward. We all have to refuse the clickbait that's offered to us and read news to become informed rather than enraged. So instead of letting bits and bites of politics and news seep into our brains when we're not looking, maybe a sober news review will help us assess the real problems we face. In short, she says, we must resist the temptation for fire and fury and opt instead for equilibrium. We need to change the words we use to describe politics, and the only way to do that is dismiss the pull of negative emotions. I still think that there's something to be said for ignoring the news. And and look, when it comes to information, if you want good information, you've got to be a hunter. You've got to be the kind of person who can go out there and hunt up good, credible information. That means you're going to have to do your own homework. You are going to have to be the one to find sources, prove those sources, and see, is this one that can be trusted? Is this one that's playing fast and loose, you know, with the, with the facts? But ultimately, you've got to be the fact checker. Now, you've heard of the expression FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out. Okay, there's, there's an equivalent of this that happens among those of us who want to be informed. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So if I'm calling anybody out, it's, it's likely myself. But I'm worried, but I might miss something. I might miss an important story. I've had to learn to just let that go and just understand it. Really, in a true sense, you can't know what's going on in the world. Why? Well, because there's an awful lot of stuff, only some of which is actually relevant to us. The rest of it's interesting. I mean, come on, we can get lost for hours scrolling on X or scrolling on, you know, social media. Lots of interesting diversions, but the stuff that really counts, that's something we've got to figure out for ourselves. And then we sort through what actually matters enough that we're willing to go hunt for that information. I know this. I've watched numerous people become legit experts on a given topic simply because they wanted to know. You couldn't stop them from learning. I think about my friend Albert, who, if if I have a question on monetary policy or anything related to, for instance, uh, um, cryptocurrency, Albert's the guy I go to. And it's not because, well, yes, you know, he's got a triple PhD in all of these uh, disciplines from Harvard. And no, it's because 
I know Albert cared enough about monetary policy that, you know, 12, 13 years ago, he got serious about learning for himself. And he started reading and studying multiple sources and asking people until he could get his mind around the subject. And now he is legit. Probably the most informed person I know on monetary policy. I mean, some people, you know, beekeeping is is what uh, floats their boat. My point is, though, if all you're taking in as information is what's being fed to you by mainstream media, they're the ones setting the agenda of what's important for you versus what isn't. Whose side do you think they're going to come down on? Yeah, probably the ones that they serve, the powers that be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show where, once again, I'm doing that delicate balancing act of trying to share some good, hard-hitting, credible information without, uh, you know, scaring people to death. It's not as easy as it sounds, by the way, including myself. I want to know what's going on, but, uh, you know, I don't want to get too far into the weeds to where it's like, okay, now I'm paralyzed with fear. Nonetheless, when someone tells you there's kind of a 1914 vibe that, that we're feeling right now in American society, probably not a bad idea to listen. I've got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about the shredded social contract. Now, I'm sharing this because I will not let go what was done to us under the guise of protecting us from COVID. So much of it was not just wrong, it was actually evil. And the crazy part is so many people went along with it because they were scared. And they either implemented policies that shut down businesses or that otherwise hurt people. Or they enforced those policies as if they were laws. And nobody has, uh, nobody has admitted it. Nobody has said, well, you know, that was wrong and we probably shouldn't do that again. Which I can only take to mean they would do it again if they felt that they needed to. In other words, to maintain control. Jeffrey Tucker says, uh, this is not about whether there is such a thing as a literal social contract. The phrase has been a metaphor and an imprecise one since it was first invoked by Enlightenment-era thinkers trying to sort through a rationale for collective practice of some sort. Now, he says, it's easy enough to regard the social contract as not as explicit but implied, evolved, and organic to the public mind. At the most intuitive level, we can think of it as a widely shared understanding of mutual obligation a tie that binds, and also the exchange relationship between society and state. The bare minimum idea of a social contract is to seek out widespread security, thriving, and peace for as many members as possible. No matter how narrow or broad you understand that phrase, it includes, most fundamentally, the shared expectations of what government should and should not do. Above all else, it means protecting the public from violent attack and hence defending the rights and liberties of the people against imposition on person, public or private. So the reality today is that the social contract is broken in nations all over the world. Jeffrey Tucker says this concerns the widespread failure of social welfare, health systems, and sound money. It includes the medical conscription called vaccine mandates. It impacts on mass migration as well as crime and many other issues as well. 
Systems are failing the world over with ill health, low growth, inflation, rising debt, and widespread insecurity and distrust. So let's consider the most shocking case in the news, the mind-boggling failure on the part of the Israeli government to protect its citizens against hostile elements just across its border. He says a revealing news article in the New York Times explains the aftermath. It includes, quote, a total breakdown of trust between the citizens and the state of Israel and a collapse of everything Israelis believed in and relied on. Initial assessments point to an Israeli intelligence failure before the surprise attack, the failure of a sophisticated border barrier, the military's slow initial response, and a government that appears to have busied itself with the wrong things and now appears largely absent and dysfunctional. End quote. Moreover, Jeffrey Tucker points out, public fury at the government has been compounded by Mr. Netanyahu's refusal so far to openly accept any responsibility for the October 7th disaster. Nahum Barnea, a prominent Israeli commentator, put it this way, We are mourning for those who were murdered, but the loss does not end there. It is the state that we lost. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, True. There's been very little discussion of this terrible topic, and understandably so. Israel at its base as a project and history is a promise of security for the Jewish people. That's the core of all of it. If it fails here, it fails everywhere. After all, the attacks from Hamas were extremely well planned over two or perhaps three years. And so he asks, where was the famed Israeli intelligence? How is it possible that it could even that it could have failed so many ways to, that end in unspeakable mayhem and murder, even to the point that Israel itself is hamstrung in its response by the existence of so many hostages? Jeffrey Tucker says it's utterly heartbreaking, not only for the loss of life, but also for the loss of shared trust that this nation depends on so foundationally. So what is the answer? Well, he says part of the answer is that three and a half years ago, the Israeli government turned its attention to chasing down a virus as a national priority. It wasn't only social distancing and business closures. It was contact tracing, mass testing, and masking. The vaccine mandates in the country were some of the most coercive and universal in the world. Almost immediately at the onset of the crisis, the Israeli government maxed out stringencies going further than the U.S. Nearly a year later, they grew even tighter, only relaxing a full year later. By the way, he's got the graphs that show how this unfolded. As Sunetra Gupta pointed out early on, this was already a near-universal violation of the social contract on how to handle infectious disease. In nearly every nation, we had rules of isolation to protect workers in some classes, while workers in other classes were shoved in front of the virus. This contradicted, contradicted rather all modern public health practice, which had long eschewed dividing classes this way. The theory of the past is that infectious disease is a burden shared socially with special efforts to protect the vulnerable, based not on class, race, and access, but on traits of the human experience shared by everyone. The warnings poured in from dissident scientists from the very onset, one even dating back a decade and a half earlier, that anything like a lockdown would wreck trust in public health, respect for science, and confidence in government institutions and those allied with them. Well, that's precisely what happened the world over. 
And Jeffrey Tucker says, and that was just the, just the beginning. The mandates to get a shot hardly anyone really needed or wanted was next level crazy. It required an all of government approach and it became a priority that trumped all others. Every national experience is different in the particulars, but the theme in all nations that attempted extreme measures of virus control neglected other concerns. In the U.S., every other concern was shelved. For example, during these years, the immigration issue had become paramount in people's lives, particularly in those in border states that had long lived with a delicate balance of friendly relations and controlled flows of the human population. During the COVID years, this was blown up. It was obviously true with educational policy, too. Decades of focus on educational health and outcomes were thrown out in favor of full school closures that extended a year and longer. It was also true with economic policy. Seemingly and suddenly out of nowhere, no one could be bothered with the age-old warnings against too much expansion of the money stock and public debt. It's as if all the old wisdom was put on a shelf. Surely the gods would reward a nation that controlled the virus by not allowing them to reap the whirlwind stemming from outrageous levels of spending and printing. Sure enough, all those embedded forces of nature came anyway. The idea of closing nations and economies to focus on virus control was millenarian in its ambitions. It was sheer fantasy. Time doesn't stop. We only pretend to stop it. Societies and economies always move forward with time, like seas embedding and flowing with the rotations of the earth. No government in the world is powerful enough to stop it. The attempt produces calamity. Well, it's been three and a half years since this grand experiment began. Now a plurality of people the world over are only now fully realizing the extent of damage and who caused it. After all, we do have the internet to document what happened. So it does no good for the pushers of lockdowns to just pretend like nothing happened. When given the chance, voters have begun driving these people from office or they're escaping before facing humiliation. Over the weekend, this is what happened in New Zealand, one of the most lockdown states in the world during the COVID years. The prime minister from those years who claimed to be the one source of truth has found sanctuary at Harvard while the politics of that nation have entered the upheaval stage. Now, he says, each nation has a story of failure and tragedy, but the one that grips us most is perhaps the Israeli one. He says, I'm writing in the aftermath of the bloodthirsty attacks on innocence, which occurred during a national crisis, the response from which will inevitably unleash new forces of violence and blowback. The questions about the security failings that led to this are not going away. In fact, they're growing more intense by the hour. A nation like Israel, geographically young and fragile, depends foundationally on a government that can keep its commitments to its people. When it fails so spectacularly and with such enormous cost, it brings forth a new moment in national life, one which will echo far into the future. Less spectacularly, other nations are dealing with a similar crisis of confidence in leadership. All those reminders of uh, we told you so don't fix the underlying problem that we face the world over today. He says these are crises piling on crises. And analysts are warning that we are in a 1914 moment and they seem to be speaking the truth we don't want to hear, but we should. I got to tap the brakes here. We'll come back. We'll finish up Jeffrey Tucker's commentary and have a couple others to share as well. Back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment. I just want to finish up this commentary from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about the shredded social contract. He says the idea of the modern state was that it would be better than ancient states because it would be accountable to the people, the voters, the press, the private sector watchdogs, and above all, to do the one job it was assigned, which is defending the rights and liberties of the people. That's the very center of the modern social contract. Bit by bit, and then all at once, the contract was shredded. Now listen, he says, if we are actually looking at something along the lines of 1914. History should absolutely record what immediately preceded these awful days. Governments of the world turned vast resources and attention to the grand project of unprecedented scope, the universal mastery of the microbial kingdom. We were only beginning to process just how spectacularly the central plan failed when we were dealing with the most egregious fallout that not even the most pessimistic among us could have foreseen. The social contract is shredded. Another one of a different sort must be drafted. Once again, not literally, but implicitly and organically. I sure like how he thinks. And I think that uh, the Brownstone Institute and Jeffrey Tucker have been among some of my most uh, favored and reliable sources when it came to uh, dealing with COVID and uh, all the various restrictions and mandates and and the, the damage done. And I know that there, there may be some level, and maybe I'm wrong for, for hanging on to the, um, the sense of, of resentment and having been wronged, but I don't want to see it happen again. That's, that's my main motivation. I don't want to see these kinds of, of policies pushed on people. I don't think it would go well if somebody did try it, but I don't, I don't even want to see it tried. All right, two articles I want to get to here in the, the closing minutes of the show. Here's an interesting thought. What if we were on the verge of the biggest economic event in human history? I know, it's like, really? Wow, that's, uh, that's kind of exciting. Well, kind of, yes. It's also a little bit scary when you consider that uh, um, the global reset is what we're talking about. And whether it's, uh, whether it's a collapse of the banks, an economic collapse, war, or all three put together, it's going to be the largest economic event in history. And the thing you want to keep track of, this is courtesy of uh, Madge Waggy. Have you heard of the reset which the International Monetary Fund has planned for the world's financial system? She says, likely you haven't, but that's okay. Most people haven't. If, if this weren't the head of the most powerful financial institution in the world, it would be easy to write this off as irrelevant. But the IMF has the power to pull this off. But How? Okay, well, the quick answer is the SDR. That's short for Special Drawing Rights, which is IMF money, so to speak. Without getting into the complexities of it, think of it as, as currency for nation states only. Businesses and individuals cannot access Special Drawing Rights, or SDRs. SDRs are what the IMF uses to bail out nations and, quote, rebalance economies. They're digital, not hard currency. So you cannot hold an SDR in your hand, nor can you write a check for one. What backs them? Well, international currencies. Larger economies like the EU, USA, Britain, China, and others contribute their currencies to the IMF as donations to be used to maintain the global financial system. 
So when a nation like Greece gets into trouble, the IMF may choose to issue SDRs, which can be converted into any currency required. So in the case of Greece, they would convert their SDRs into euros. Now remember, SDRs are digital only, and you could say they were created to be converted into another currency. Little bit of history here. SDRs were created in 1969. They're used by many nations. There were times when political forces attempted to make SDRs the world currency, but none succeeded. But today, more than ever, there's a growing consensus among nations to bring SDRs onto the world stage as the one world currency. Now, exactly what this would look like and how it would come to our de- come to be our details, just a handful of people know. But there is a meeting every five years to discuss the SDR, and the next meeting happens to be in October of 2025. So, why this matters? Well, the past five years have seen calls from nations like Russia and China for a one-world system, a one-world currency, namely the SDR. Previously, these two nations were holdouts to this system. Now both are vocal advocates of this monumental shift. That leaves no substantial resistance to SDRs among nations, save countries like Iran, Syria, and smaller nations which have no say in these matters. So, back to the reset. The term creative destruction is popular among economists. It refers to the process of destroying something in order to birth something better. So in this scenario, they would deem destruction to be creative. That's exactly what the heads of large financial institutions, nations, and various global players have in mind. In fact, they've said so with their own words. And when people with this kind of power say they want to do something, it would be wise to remember it. It's true, they don't always succeed, but usually they do. So the global reset will be a currency reset. Select currencies will be chosen to form a basket of currencies, which will be the privileged few to which SDRs can convert to. Now, will other currencies still exist? Match says, I don't know. But even if they do, their value will be greatly diminished. As I write this, we already have a currency crisis developing in the world as the U.S. dollar has become so much more valuable than other currencies, in particular emerging nations. So why this is a problem? Well, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. So to trade with other nations, it's usually necessary to convert your nation's currency into U.S. dollars. This becomes a problem when your currency is worth very few U.S. dollars. It makes everything more expensive. It can be a benefit for exports, though, as other nations view your products as cheaper due to your currency being devalued. But unless the country is a major exporter, this isn't enough to offset the devaluation disadvantage. Now, she says this trend shows no sign of changing and ultimately will result in emerging nations being unable to pay back debt denominated in U.S. dollars or import goods required for their society. This is why we need a reset, among other reasons, like the, among other reasons rather, that the IMF would state. So if you listen to the IMF discuss the reset, it sounds like a necessary change and beneficial for global trade and commerce. But behind the few benefits are some nasty hooks. SDRs will put control of the world's money in the hands of a few. The money will have no intrinsic value, even worse now than you know, where we merely trade pieces of paper with no intrinsic value, will be moving to a digital currency. This means with the click of a mouse, billions, trillions, quadrillions can be given or taken away. That's a lot of power. Many people understand the danger of a system like this and therefore will resist 
Now, the IMF and its allies already know this, which is why they believe they will have to orchestrate a crisis big enough to make the whole world beg for a new system. That's easy to do when you have the cooperation of the largest banks, governments, and institutions in the world. So, the global reset will happen fast. You won't be warned. You'll either be ready in advance or you'll be subject to whatever crisis unfolds. Whether it be a collapse on the banks, an economic collapse, a war, or all three is anybody's guess. But it will be the largest economic event in history. And there's no way to know exactly what will occur, but there are ways to prepare for it. thought that was an interesting article, and actually I've offered some insights that I had not been privy to before. Again, that's Madge Waggy. I'll have a link in today's show notes. These are the show notes for October 18th, 2023. One final note here. This is the final, uh, this is the article of the day, actually. With people across the nation calling for limits on the kinds of sexual material that can be made available in public school to minors, particularly in school libraries, you're hearing a lot of accusation of book burners. Oh, the book burners are out there trying to burn books that just acknowledge the existence of people. Yes, while teaching you how to do every, you know, demented sexual practice, you know, in the, in the book. But the problem isn't the book banners. It's public schools. And Neil McCluskey has an, an excellent article. This is from the Cato Institute. Book banning in public schools doesn't spring from some conservative cabal. As battles fought all over the country attest, such actions are inevitable when people with opposing values, any values, must all pay for government schools. The solution, of course, is separation of school and state. It's an excellent article. I hope you'll take a look at it. He wrote this in honor of Banned Books Week, but you know, when you hear people talking about they're banning books, they're burning books, and so forth, no, they're not. But they are definitely questioning, hey, is this really the kind of material we should be putting out there in front of kids? By the way, the sheriff, I believe it was in Kootenai County here in Idaho, actually went to the library and scoped some of this out for himself. And, and he came back going, yeah, these are, these are books that I would not be given to my kid. I think that would actually violate Idaho law. Yeah, needless to say, there are some people not very happy with the sheriff. How dare someone in authority come down on the side of right and wrong yes how dare he this is the brian hyde show